0: We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. I want to start by asking all of you to participate in three questions that I need you all to raise your hands for if you're going to answer. Okay, three questions. So the first question is, who in this room is employed? That means who here has a job where they get some paycheck, some remuneration, part-time, full-time, whatever it is. And If you've retired in the last five years, we'll count that. Raise your hands high and proud. Don't be ashamed. High. And if you... Good. Okay, good. Now, of those of you that raised your hands, how many of you who are employed, who receive remuneration, who get a paycheck for the job you do, raise your hands high and proud if you think that you are overpaid for the job that you do? (laughs) Okay, Charlie Klatskin's the only one who raised his hand. (laughs) It's about right. Okay, one more question for all of you. Raise your hand high and proud if you can think of someone else you know who you think is overpaid. (laughs) Exactly as I suspected. What is it in our society that gives us a license to judge others? that gives us a license to say only one person in the room thinks they're overpaid, but about 150 of you think that others they know are overpaid. When I talk about judging, I'm not talking about judging like in Ruth Bader Ginsburg judging, and I'm not talking about judging like referees do or umpires do on the field. I'm talking about the way that we judge the actions and the deeds of others. I'm talking about moral judgment, a holier-than-thou approach that puts us on a virtual throne, higher than others, and judging every detail of other people's lives. We judge people for how hard they work and how much they earn, or how hard they don't work and what they don't earn, what they spend their money on, where they live. We judge people for where they vacation, the car that they drive, the country club that they belong to, the shul that they do not belong to, the way their kids act, the things they say and do and the things they don't say and don't do. We judge people on who they voted for. We judge people on what they wear and what they don't wear. We judge people if they have tattoos. We judge people if they're being too flirty and we judge people who are acting too reserved. Who amongst us couldn't add miles to this list that I just enumerated. Now, judging is nothing new. Sephardic Jews after the Holocaust judged Ashkenazic Jews for being led like sheep to the slaughter and not fighting back. Ashkenazic Jews judged Sephardic Jews for not being intellectually curious. Before the Holocaust, the sophisticated Jewish aristocrats judged Jews who spent their life praying and studying. Reformed Jews judge Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews judge conservative Jews, and all Jews judge Reconstructionist Jews because most people have no idea what a Reconstructionist Jew is. (laughs) Cain judged Abel. We have been judging each other since the beginning of all time, and we're still judging today. Dennis Prager opines that every Jew thinks he or she is the perfect Jew because anyone to the right of them is a Meshuggah, and anyone to the left of them is a goy. And he's spot on. We've always been judgmental. But we seem to be living in a society that is increasingly judgmental by the day. It's like all things big and all things small are inviting our judgment. And so often, and so willingly, we render that judgment without being asked to judge in the first place, without being aware of any of the consequences, without taking care of the responsibilities entailed or the hurt we can cause by offering that judgment. What social media has done for the judgment of others is tantamount to pouring gasoline on a fire. It has exacerbated the divide between perception and between reality and it leaves us judging with fewer facts, and it can make people feel very inadequate. That creates a soreness in that inadequacy that's often soothed by judging another person. To speak personally with all of you for a moment, it's hard for me to let go of my judgment. I mean, take this as an example. A few weeks ago, I read in the newspaper about parents that were spending money and we're talking serious dollars, to hire Fortnite tutors for their kids so that they can achieve higher levels on this addictive video game. When I read that article, I couldn't help but cringe and think of any parent who would spend such resources and energy on such a thing is abominable. But I was judging that person. I judge people on very trivial things like who they're going to pick in their fantasy football draft. And I judge people for very serious things, like the models that they value when they teach their children. It's really hard for me to live a life that is judgment-free when I, as the rabbi, learn about people who quit their membership in a temple just weeks after their youngest child's bar mitzvah but who choose to remain members in a country club that costs 10 times the price of temple membership. I judge people who aren't philanthropic, but gamble on the golf course, or gamble on races or in the casinos. I really wish my judging was limited to these few examples, but sadly, it's not. Even though we've been judging since the time of Cain and Abel, since the time of Sephardim and Ashkenazim. And even though you do it and I do it, it doesn't make it right to judge. As author Gabrielle Bernstein writes in her book, it's a high time for a judgment detox. And this is the perfect day to begin to reflect on what we want to change in our lives. Today, I offer my hand to each of you and hope that you will join me in starting the cleanse of all the toxicity that judging others brings to our lives so we can begin today to curb this behavior. The first step in curbing the behavior is figuring out where judgment stems from in the first place. One of the things that makes us gravitate towards judging, I think, is what I refer to as the Jerry Springer effect. Have you ever seen the show, The Jerry Springer Show? No matter how bad your day is going, no matter how terrible things are, I want you to watch this television show, and I promise you, you're gonna feel a little bit better about your life. <laughs> which is the exact reason why this show is still in syndication today. We watch Jerry Springer and we see wild dysfunctionality, which inherently makes us feel better. We feel a little bit more normal. We feel better balanced in our lives. Oh, looking at that, now my marriage doesn't seem so weird. And my education doesn't seem so inadequate. And my kids seem quite amazing. (laughs) The Springer Show and America's voyeuristic thirst for these stories is a microcosm of what judgment does. The Springer Effect allows us to judge the people on that show for hopes of making us feel better about our lives do we really need shows like that to make us feel better about our lives? Do we need to watch other people's challenges just to soothe us? We do the same thing with other people when we judge their words, their clothes, their cars, their homes, or their actions. We attempt to feel better about ourselves by judging them for who and where they are in their lives. The Jewish New Year often falls within the zodiac sign of Libra, I don't think that's accidental. Libras are represented by scales and by balance. And how appropriate for a time that beckons all of us to think about judgment, law, and equality. You see, the problem is that when we judge another person for their behaviors or for their absences or for their actions or their words, what we're really doing is we're putting them on a scale with us. And when we judge them negatively, we're putting our thumbs on the scale to weigh them down, and to raise us up. That's what we're doing. We're judging them because it makes us feel better, but it's cheap, and it's temporary. It fills a void short time, for a very short time in our lives, and it diverts all the attention away from our weaknesses and our warts. I'm gonna share with you an ancient story with a modern twist about judging that I'm sure you all could understand and apply to your lives. Imagine we had the ability today to teleport back in time or to bring to modernity the wife of Rabbi Akiva whose name was Rachel, Rachel. Akiva and Rachel had a love story that is made of the same ingredients of some of the famous love stories of all time, like the love story in The Karate Kid or the love story in Pretty in Pink or in Goodwill Hunting, or Titanic, Greece, Dirty Dancing, and countless others. You get the idea. Rachel came from a very wealthy family in Jerusalem, one of the wealthiest that existed before the destruction of the temple. Her dad did very, very well for himself. She lived in the finest of homes. She had the most souped-up cannels with serious satellite radio on each of them. She wore designer shrouds, and she was living the good life. She meets Akiva, A poor peasant boy, he has no education, he doesn't have two dinars to rub together. We know nothing about his parents proving that he probably had to raise himself. One day, Rachel meets Akiva and sees a twinkle in his eye. They talk for a while, they look at each other's profile on Babylonian Facebook, (laughs) they send a few texts on parchment back and forth to each other, and then they're an item. They decide to get married. Now, Rachel's father is furious with her decision to marry this peasant boy, Akiva. So furious that he decides to not only disown her, but to not leave one dollar of his estate to her. She's off to fend for herself. And by the way, with the exception of the Facebook part, this is all true. Now, I could only wonder if we could go back in time and listen as all of the girlfriends of Rachel were gathering around the cistern, gathering water, and what they must have been saying before she walked up, putting her camel on the hitch. What does she see in this boy Akiva, they were probably saying? She was the queen of the yeshiva prom and she chose him? Is this her revenge at daddy and his wealth? Is this something that Freud would be involved in? Why would she choose Akiva when there's so many other hunky scholars to choose from? I'm sure, even back then, she would have been judged by people who were never asked to render their opinion. Who amongst us today couldn't do or say the same? Even if it's not a watering hole, but instead a coffee house. Incidentally, years later, Akiva returned home from studying, where he went without his wife, but with her blessing. With 25,000 disciples, and Rachel came out to greet him, and he announced to everyone, what you know and what I know is only because of her. They embraced, and they lived happily ever after, proving that her love endured. Who knows, though, if Rachel would have overheard her friends talking at the cistern. What toll that could have taken on her in judging her choice in Akiva? could have poisoned her relationship. It could have poisoned her marriage. It could have poisoned her life. And that's because judging is poisonous for so many reasons. First, when we're judged, or if we feel judged, like Rachel must have felt, we can feel embarrassed. We can feel remorseful. We can get apologetic. And we can work extra hard to excuse ourselves. We really do not need excuses. Plus, when we're judging, we're only hurting another person. And it still causes hurt, even if they can't see us or hear the judgment that we offer. Second, when we are judgmental people, sometimes people assume we're judging, even if we're not. How often I have heard this line, Oh, Rabbi, I'm so sorry I haven't been at shul lately. I've been really busy at work or with the kids. Or if I run into someone in a diner. Oh, oh, Rabbi, I'm so sorry I ordered this meal that I'm eating that is not kosher. Um, I'm going to send it back. I really decided not to have it. (laughs) As if my primal responsibility when running into someone is their attendance sheet at synagogue or what they order at the diner. As if I judge them more about those things than the values that they keep or the deeds in which they do. The third thing is that when we offer judgment, we make a really haughty assumption that our way and our views are the correct ones and the only way forward, and anyone who veers from our path are just wrong and they're misguided. And too often, we make choices that are solely based on the idea of what will others say and judge us on based on what we do. How very insincere. And lastly, When we assume we're being judged, the relationship we have with the other person who we think we're being judged by can feel awkward and strained and inauthentic. So how do we cleanse ourselves from feeling judged in the first place? As I said before, most of that judgment comes from a place of inadequacy in our own lives that we try to bring to some equilibrium by bringing others down, but we know that pointing out defects on another's skin is not going to take away our pimples and our blemishes. So today is a day for all of us to exfoliate, to unpeel the onion, to riff off Shrek a little bit, and to see the layers of the people around us, those we know well and those that we judge from afar. And as we unpeel that onion back, it's time for us to release that harsh judgment that we put on ourselves too that inhibits us from reaching our maximum potential. What today really is, is a day for us to understand God's role in judging us, and a day for us to relinquish our role in judging others. Maimonides, who was the great 12th century teacher, who was a scribe, a philosopher, and he was a physician, he proved that he was dialed into neuropsychology way before Jung and Freud. He taught in his code of Jewish doctrine, the Yad Chazakah, that it is not a law to not judge someone. Rather, it's a value. So I'm sorry for those double negatives. What he was saying is, by judging someone, you're not breaking a law. It's a value to not judge them, but it's not a law. And the reason he says that is because he knew how hardwired we are to make judgments. In fact, when I read the Torah and did research for this sermon, I found two cases in the Old Testament where we are commanded not to judge, or to judge our neighbor favorably. In the New Testament, there are 35 inferences of judging favorably. So in the Jewish tradition, it's really not an issue that is dealt with the same way that the newer traditions of monotheistic beliefs seem to deal with. And one of the reasons behind that is simply because we knew the way in which we were wired that makes it so hard for us not to judge. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this summer, perhaps you saw it, that proved Maimonides' point just 800 years later. The article spoke about how we should posture ourselves when we have meetings with people when first impressions are at hand. How should we walk in? How should we make eye contact? How do we speak? How do we stand? Where do we put our hands? The article blended together psychological dispositions with environmental behaviors that were unique to particular regions and surmised that we judge people in a particular way based on our first five seconds of encounter with them. That we make these first impressions and we snap to them and they give us some formation of what we see in the other person based on their smile, based on their stance, based on where their hands are, based on the way they speak, based on their eye contact. All of these things give us a platform for judgment. And you know what the article went on to say? That in most cases, the judgment that we make in that snap moment is wrong. In most cases, when we assume someone is kind, they're not. In most cases, when we assume someone is haughty, they're actually humble. In most cases when we think someone is standoffish, they're actually just shy. And Most of these summations we make in those first five or 10 seconds are wrong. And what Maimonides was trying to say about the value, and what the Wall Street Journal Journal article said just the same, was that we need to fight the impulse of those first impressions. What ends up happening too many times though is that we make judgments in those first five or 10 seconds, and that to make matters worse, we believe in our judgments. We have no elasticity to say we were wrong. We've looked at the evidence, we've made our judgment, and it has to be right. And we're so rigid that we find every detail we can to prove our theory right, as opposed to saying, perhaps we were wrong. So let's take this out of the Petri dish for a minute and let's look at it in application. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you see a small, cute dog. You just wanna pet that dog, it looks so friendly. You go up to approach it and you say, cute little puppy, and you wanna give it a little pet on its kepi, and as you get close to the dog and you reach out your hand, the dog snarls and it tries to bite you. All of a sudden, that cute little puppy isn't so cute. You feel fear and you're maybe even a little bit angry. And then, at that very same moment, the wind blows. And as the wind blows, it rustles a whole bunch of leaves, and you see now that the dog's leg is trapped. It's caught in the woods. And now you feel compassion for the dog because you realize that it most likely snarled at you and snapped at you because it's in pain and it's suffering and it's scared and is trying to defend itself at all costs. These are... Normal, reflex like judgments that Maimonides and current neuropsychology researchers teach. But there are more layers to the cuteness of that animal, and there are more layers to the dog's snap. That these things could be caused by things that we see and that we don't see. And our responsibility is to look for it. The story of the dog is a parable for any and all of the things that we judge in life. Can we see under the leaves? Are we prepared for the bark and for the bite? Do we even consider what's causing the bark and the bite in the first place? And can we fight the urge to make those snap judgments? Judaism boils down our role in judging into three simple words. Dan lekav schut. Give someone the benefit of the doubt. Judge them favorably. As Atticus Finch said in To Kill a Mockingbird, you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view, until you climb inside of their skin and you walk around in it. It's such a simple lesson, but yet it's so hard for so many of us, you and me, to execute upon. My mom, who is here today, is an amazing woman. She is my hero in so many ways, more than I can count, for the things that she has taught me and modeled for me and the love that she has showered upon me. But she's still my mom, which means at times she has just the recipe to cook my grits. My brothers and I talk about this at times when she finds that same recipe for them. My mom has this famous phrase in her life, She enters the house whenever she comes to visit, and within 10 seconds we have an over-under. She always goes and wins the under, until she says this phrase, which is, can I make a suggestion? (laughs) She says it at my house. She says it at my brother's house. She says it at my in-law's house. She says it whenever I'm in the kitchen and she's not. It seems to be a mantra in her life. Ever since we were making independent choices, my mom would say, Can I make a suggestion? And you're all laughing, and it's also adorable for all of you, but it's not that adorable all the time. <laughs> Trust me. But my mom has had amazing blessings in her life, and she suffered through her share of tragedy too, including the death of her oldest child. Now, when my brother Gabe died, she decided to dedicate her energies towards helping others cope with grief of losing a child. She didn't tell me she was doing this, she never told her husband she was doing this, but I realized over the past 15 years that she'd been doing this. How did I realize it? I realized it because I met someone who noticed my last name and asked if I was related to Barbara Kirshner, which doesn't happen every day. I said, yeah, proudly, that's my mom. The person started to well up with tears. And she grabbed my hands and looked me right in the eye, very close to me, and she said that she experienced the untimely death of her adult child. She explained that my mom in Florida came to their home, sat with them, talked with them for what seemed like hours, didn't take away their pain, but she gave them a sense of hope. She reminded them that the sun will rise tomorrow and that their child's death, while tragic, and while irreparable, should not stop them from living. She was a balm to a very, very painful burn. And she has been this balm for countless souls with sincerity and kindness, and she does this every day in the work that she does in a funeral home in Florida. Now I need to remember this and keep it in perspective in my frontal lobe the next time she says to me, can I make a suggestion? Because that's what I need to be reminded of instead of being upset or judgmental at those moments of interference. It balances out the scales and allows us to see something in a more even manner. This summer our family traveled to Europe and then we arrived in Israel a few days early for some family time before our Temple Emmanuel family mission. We had planned to enjoy Shabbat by the beach and some sacrosanct time, just the four of us, which we too often don't get. Now we have this new gadget at the shul that I love. If someone leaves me a voicemail, it pages my phone instantly and gives me the exact message on my phone. So I don't have to wait to come home to check my messages to see if there's an emergent situation. I think this is such a cool little thing. So it's right before Shabbat, we're taking turns going in and out of the shower, getting dressed, getting ready to go down to the Namal, which is the main port for Kabbalah Shabbat services, and I get a message on my phone that there's been a voicemail left at the temple for me. It's a woman who seemed distraught, and I called her back before Shabbat. I said, this is Rabbi Kirshner, I'm returning your call. The woman says, are you David Kirshner? I said, yes, I am. Are you David Seth Kirshner? I said, yes, I am. Is your mother Barbara Kirshner? The one who says, can I make a suggestion? I said, yes, she is. Is your father Cantor Philip Kirshner? My father was a cantor before he was a rabbi. I said, yes. I'm thinking to myself, wow, this woman is cuckoo. Like of all the calls I needed to make before my relaxing Shabbos with my family, I had to make this one to get voir by a woman I've never heard. I had judged her before I heard anything, before I said anything, explained anything, uncovered anything. I had already summed her up. She then burst into tears on in the telephone, and she said, How do I get a hold of your father? I must speak with your father. I said, Ma'am, I'm very, very sorry, but my father died seven years ago. How can I be of assistance to you? The woman explained to me on the phone that more than 47 years ago, before I was born, that her nephew and niece were tragically killed in a car accident in Charlotte, North Carolina, where my father served as the cantor of the congregation. They were picking up one child to go to Hebrew school, a car hit them, and both children were killed. It was a total shock to the community, and everyone was reeling from the pain and from the disbelief. This woman on the phone explained to me that her husband, who was the rabbi of the congregation and the uncle of the niece and the nephew who were killed, was unable to comfort his family or his congregation, probably because the pain was too close to home for him and because the tragedy was not fathomable. My father, the cantor of the congregation at the time, was the glue, she explained, that healed the entire community. It was my dad that shepherded the bereaved family through the mile markers of grief, and who wiped away their tears while providing hope. My dad. This story happened before I was even born. I had never in my life heard of this story or its details until this random phone call on the eve of Shabbat in a hotel room in Tel Aviv. The woman calling was asking to speak with my father because her husband... The rabbi of that congregation had taken ill, and he was put into a convalescent home. And she was hopeful that my dad could offer her hope and comfort like he did 47 years ago. She still thought of him and the impact that lasted all of this time, more than half of her life ago. Now, I miss my dad dearly, and I have a deep love for my dad that doesn't cease. But when my dad was alive, we butted heads so, so often. Much of what I aim to offer as a rabbi and a father and husband isn't always from the model that he set. Sometimes, in some cases, it's just the opposite. But perhaps that's because I was judging only on what I wanted to see in my dad. Who my dad was professionally, all the good things that he offered, the layers of the onion that made up my dad and makes up my mom, they all seem to have gotten glossed over by me and sometimes my brother when we were frustrated with them, or upset with them, or judging them, or when they were just cooking our grits. I share this story today because I'm sure that there's some resonance with you in some manner or another. Whether it's with a spouse or a child, a parent, a co-worker, a friend, There have been times when we wear blinders and we see what we want to see and we ignore what we choose to ignore. Today, O God, forgive me for the sin which I have committed of being biased, which is the primal no-no of any form of judgment, partiality, prejudice, preconception, affect judgment in unfair ways for all of us. Not seeing the whole picture, not understanding all of the facts, Not appreciating all the layers of the onion is a form of bias, chatati, I have sinned. When I was judging my parents, or when I judge others, I was lacking empathy. And empathy, my friends, is the antidote to judgment. I want to repeat that line. Empathy is the antidote to judgment. Couldn't we all be more empathetic in place of being more judgmental? Lastly, when I was critical of my mom, my dad, when I was critical of others for the choices that they made, I was refusing to look inward at myself. I was so focused on putting my thumb on the scale to raise me up that I wouldn't look in the mirror and see what it was that I could do better. I looked at everyone else as the problem I never looked at solving my own problems. These stories that I share with you today fit neatly into the paradigm of that cute, then snarling, then wounded puppy whose leg is trapped under the leaves. I ask you, have we bothered to move the proverbial leaves in our lives? Have you offered empathy? Have you provided some benefit of the doubt and don the cuffs to see why and how and what causes that dog to be there in the first place? What about the story that we read today of Abraham and Sarah? It's so hard to read that story and not judge Abraham as a father who was derelict in his primal responsibility of protecting his kid. How can Abraham do something like that and jeopardize his child's safety? Why was Sarah so passive and not running after Abraham to try and save him? And why was it that Isaac is a willing partner in this endeavor instead of looking out for his own welfare? Oh, how our hindsight is so crystal clear, especially when we are not the ones in these situations. But where's our favorable judgment and our lack of bias and our focus on empathy? Who are we to tell others what's the chosen, correct path to follow? As if there's only one correct way when it comes to parenting, and we have the right to judge others who parent differently. Or there's only one manner in which to worship God, and we have the right to judge others who worship God differently. Or there's one proper way for us to be employed or to receive remuneration, or who should receive what remuneration, and we should judge others accordingly or that there's one political party that aspires most for our country's future, and we should judge others accordingly. Today is indeed Yom HaDin, it is a day of judgment, but that judgment is for God, not for us. For you and me, this has to be a day that we begin this year and every day forward, free of casting moral judgment upon others. This needs to be a year when we are don l'kavskut, when we give the benefit of the doubt wherever and however we can. This has to be a year that we jettison our bias, our prejudices and beliefs that for us to be right, others must be wrong. That for our judgment to be accepted, another's choices and actions have to be at fault. This needs to be a year with an abundance of empathy and a scarcity of judgment. This needs to be a year where we stop looking at others and instead we turn inward and we start looking at ourselves and find all of the opportunities and blessings without the need to put our thumb on the scale for anyone else. This should be a year that begins today where all judgment is left to God and that you and I see the beauty and splendor in each soul. A year when we bend down and we move the leaves to better understand the environment of those who we're blessed to interact with. God, on this Yom Hadin, help us meet and exceed these goals so that we can enter 5,779 renewed, refreshed, clean, whole, and prepared for the challenges and the opportunities that lie ahead. Kingiratso, may that be your will, O God. Amen and Shanatova.